Hi, this is Nick Dawson, the editor-in-chief of TalkHouse Film, and you're listening to the TalkHouse Film Podcast. With films such as The Delta, Forty Shades of Blue, and Keep the Lights On, Ira Sachs has established himself as one of the most important voices in contemporary American independent cinema, and there's arguably no filmmaker who better portrays the complexities and subtleties of human relationships. That particular strength is once again at the fore in his latest film, Love is Strange, the poignant and funny tale of two men, Ben and George, beautifully played by John Lithgow and Alfred Molina respectively, whose lives change for worse rather than for better when they finally marry after being together for 39 years. Stacey Passan, who made a big impression with her 2013 Sundance hit Concussion, became friends with Sachs a few years ago and was the perfect person to chat with, as she calls him, the hardest working man in queer show business. Hi. Hi. How are you? Can you hear me? I can hear you. You're, you're in New Jersey and I'm in Minneapolis. Rep- you had to rub it in that I was in New Jersey, didn't you? I had to be specific, let's put it that way. <laughs> what do you have against New Jersey? Is it the same thing that you have against Poughkeepsie? Uh, I'm just saying we're representing bits of America, you know, like this film. We all know that you have a, you have a, you, you, you like being in New York, don't you, Ira? I mean, it's a, it's a fact. You like yeah. your New York. I like my life in New York. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. But you're in Mini- but you're in Minneapolis right now doing press for your new fantastic film, Love Is Strange. And um, I won't ruin it for anybody. But I'm, when you asked John Lithgow to do Full Frontal, um, what you know, was, <laughs> did he say yes immediately for you, or because it was you, or? Yeah, you know, we're we're very close. No, I actually at one point did ask Alfred Molina to, to take his shirt off, and he said no. And that was the one time he ever said no to me in the making of the movie. That's interesting that you say that, only because people on this tour have been asking me about, the film is called Love is Strange, but it's certainly not a film about sex, and there's almost an absence of sex in the film. And, and so I've been thinking about representation and, and older relationships. And, and, uh, and there were conscious choices, really, um, at some point to, to, to not make that what, what the relationship was about. Does that mean that they don't have sex? I don't know. Well, I mean, at some point, he does say something really beautiful, and it sort of changes the nature of the, uh, of the sexual. It talks about how, you know, the nature of the sexual relationship changes over time. You know, he, he invites him down um, for, uh, in a bunk bed. I don't want to give it away, but he says, I just, I miss your body next to mine. And that's a very sweet um, reference. Um, um, of just a close, intimate nature. You know, he needs his body next to his, and um, and I, and I thought there were there were a lot of body touching kind of things going on. Um, you know, um, and and I didn't think you know it was very interesting because you know this had the potential to have some goody two shoes sort of elements to it, but there was, you know, every time it sort of went into that sort of oh we're seventy or we don't do that kind of stuff anymore. They weren't, they weren't goody two shoes. They weren't, they were, they were two, as they said, motherfuckers, you know, at some point, you know what I mean? Which I really appreciated because they were, they were whole fleshed out characters. I've really taken to the term motherfucker as I, <laughs> as I've gotten older and I've, and I, I'm always drawn to using it. And now I have two year old kids and I have, I'm always telling my husband, Boris, not to use curse words. And he's always trying, but he's not very good at not using curse words. And the truth is the one case of motherfucker 
that is in the movie that that John says the word motherfucker by law or whatever MPAA got this film an R rating just for saying motherfucker alone that's what did it that's a drag but you know what I like the fact that the well, you know what actually that I take that back I like the film that it has uh, I like the film that it ha- that I like that it has an R rating and the reason why is because it reminds me of the types of films um, that I grew up with, you know, the, the film gave me this very lovely feeling, gave me this feeling of sort of sneaking into Afro's drugs in, in Michigan in the eighties to buy the art section of the New York times, you know, to read about all the great performances. And, and, and it, it reminded me of all those great performances of New York performances of your, and those are movies, you know, that we don't get to see anymore. And I think that, that they reminded me for two reasons. One director's tend to cover up those performances with a, a lot of tricks instead of sort of letting them happen. And, and, and then, and, and actors just don't do them anymore mm. or they haven't learned to do them anymore. And in this case, you have a director who's learned to be patient and doesn't want to cover up. And then you have the great Alfred Bellina and John Lithgow who will give you these wonderful performances if you just let them. Yeah. You know, and I, you must have been just um, in, in heaven on set. What was that process like? Well, thank you for, for that. And I, and I, and those are the movies in a lot of ways that I'm still in conversation with. Um, very realist American films, also films. I'm, I've been in a 20 year obsession with the French filmmaker Maurice Piala. And um, on set, when we were shooting, Christos Vuteris and I, the, the cinematographer, would like hold Anos Amour and Lulu, these extremely naturalistic movies with movie stars, you know, Gerard Depardieu and Isabelle Huppert in those films. And, and, and just seeing the kind of freedom of the performances and how the camera helped to, to capture those was something that we were very engaged in, in Love is Strange. Um, I have developed a, a pretty specific way of working with actors, and that's that's whether they're seasoned actors like Lithgow Molina and Marissa Tomei or, or younger actors like the kid, Charlie Tehan, who's in the film and, and I think gives such a beautiful performance. Um, and that is something that I've developed over, you know, having made five features and, and that I don't, I don't rehearse the actors before we start shooting. Um, we do talk individually. I speak, I spend time with each of them separately for, you know, four or five hours here or there, but I've never heard the script and neither have they. We've never discussed anything looking or like subtext or, or motivation. Those are terrible words to me on a set to hear because they, they, they limit the possibility of any one moment. Um, what I do do is I block the scene when I get there when the day of the shooting, and ultimately when you shoot a a scene for four or five hours, there's a lot of rehearsal, there's a lot of development, there's a lot of adjustments, and that's really where it comes to life. What I don't want actors to do, and and this has worked well for me, is to to have too much pre-thought before they actually respond to the other actor who's talking to them. Does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. But I, I, I'm wondering, so you've never heard the script before. You, you must have auditioned these actors. I mean, not, not Melina and Lithgow, but, I, the, but my, the, Charlie. The, yeah, the smaller day players have done a scene for me. And, and I need to really see in that audition that they can do everything I want if we were going to make the movie the next day. I never assume anyone can transform through the process of, of 
me working with them. I really have to know that I can get what I want instantly. Um, that's why for me, a non-actor and a, uh, a non-professional actor and an and a experienced actor are kind of the same. They're both either right for the, the, the words or they're not. And I, and I don't assume that any process is going to change that. So yes, I've heard, you know, one, one scene from an actor if they've auditioned for the film, but, but no other scenes and never with the other actors that are in the movie. And are you improvising as well or is that just all part of it? Well, John Lithgow has been making fun of me on this tour and as we've talked about the film because I'm, I'm, I'm very, I want everything to be very loose, but I want them to get all the words right. Ah. Uh, so I'm not, and, and that's not because, I, I'm, it's usually not because I'm a stickler for the words and think that they're brilliant or anything. I often think when actors flub words, they're actually looking for the words that I wrote and they just haven't quite found them. So often I, I just... Or they're going to say too many things when when less will will do. So I, I am pretty strict with the script. Um, what I what is I think the real challenge for actors in my movie is that they simultaneously need to learn the business of the actions, what they're going to do with their hands and how they're going to cross and what they're going to do with the, the props and all of that is takes some time. And that's usually why for some actors I know I won't get them to the right moment until about take five or six. Other actors. Molina's a like a is 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 a, in the lower range. Like he really gets going around one and two and three. Um, you know, Marissa, she's pushing in this wonderful way. She's super ambitious emotionally. So she's going to keep going until she gets to something that's that's really really real and rich. And that's a different pace. You know, so each actor has its has their own um, needs. think of independent film I think that I, I think about it as a as a way of being I don't necessarily think of it as a genre particularly if I'm, I'm thinking of my own work within the context of a hundred years of movie making which I think I am in conversation with myself I mean trying to kind right. of you know and I'm not sure independent stands out as is is better or worse I mean I think right now we can talk about economics you know what I think is a real challenge and and what I'm I'm finding finally a way to do is to create a sustained career making a film after another film and to keep going. And I think that is what is really hard. Part of what has been useful for me is to not assume anyone else is going to, to give me the permission to do that. And I think that is when I go back to independent film in the terms of like John Cassavetes, who wasn't given, no one told him he could make those movies. He raised the money and made the movies because he, he, he had to, and they were not within a system. And I think that's part of what makes them really exciting. And I and I keep finding as a filmmaker, you have to go back to 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 kind of your your youthful attempt to be risky and also to to be kind of radical in terms of how you're going to approach content, but even also about economics. Talk a little bit about about the imagery in the film. Um, it seems like every. Every image is painted. 
a big difference in this film and my than in my previous films. And this came out of lots of discussions with Christos, the cinematographer, uh, about how we were going to shoot this movie. Is we're really working with a different lens than I'd ever done before. I I think all my previous films were 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 somewhat about an individual coming to know themselves, but in the process, they're experiencing a lot of alienation. Um, and, and as such, I was often working with a long lens um, where you see people in their landscapes and somewhat from a distance. Mm-hmm. With this film, I'm primarily working with the 50 um, millimeter lens, which is considered the lens of the human eye. And we're much closer and we're much more frontal which I've never been comfortable doing. And I think that that creates a different kind of attachment for the audience that um, has, has created a different kind of response. So there's, you know, each shot is an aesthetic question and asks, um, I take the shot very significantly. When I work with students, uh, I teach at NYU, and I, and I have them make movies in five to seven shots because I want them to consider what each of those shots can do. And I think I try to put the same uh, boundaries on my own work. Um, did you make this movie in five to seven shots? Is that what you're saying? Just saying that each shot has to, to have aesthetic integrity and value. You mm-hmm. know, to be, and you have to really consider, consider each image. It's not just a process of illustrating dialogue. It's about creating a series of images that work con- con- with continuity to, to tell the story. So I'm just saying that when you say each frame is a painting, to me, I guess I would say each frame is a shot. And I've considered that shot carefully while, while also trying not to be rigid. That's also as important to, be, to have a looseness, which I think for me has maybe developed more as I've gotten older and I've felt a little more confident. And, you know, two elements that I, I see in John Lithgow and in Ben that I've really thinking about a lot lately is humility and confidence. The combination of those two is something to aspire for. The other thing that I adored about it, and I've only seen two of your, well, three of your films, if you count um, um, uh, Last Address, which I'm going to get into um, next. Um, But I, knowing you for a little bit, as I have, um, I, 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 I always love it when you can see sort of the director's hand um, over the work, his personality or her personality. And it's, it's just, it, it just was pure you, you know, it just seemed like it was you in that film. And, um, that's always a real pleasure to be able to see. I mean, I, I, you don't even have to know the director to know it's, it's, it's the director, you know, you could watch Mazursky's film and know that it was Mazursky, you know, to, to understand the personality of the director. It's, it's the humanness coming out of it's the humanity, it's the maturity, the humility, the confidence, um, coming out of the, of the director. And that's, that's pure joy to watch. Um, um, and that's because that's assurance as well. Um, so that was terrific. The, the, uh, I want to, I want to use this, um, this time to sort of segue into, um, into, um, last address, um, um, which I think, um, we, we talked about New York and, and, and how New York is, is, is a big deal in at least your last two films. Right. And, um, and, what I, I, I consider um, 
as much as I was blubbering for, with, with Love is Strange, uh, Last Address is, um, I, I don't know, not much uh, as a film really as, as a quiet eulogy, you know, a perfect, perfect short film, really. Um, and a Love Letter to New York and the, the great artistic potential we've lost, I think, as a city. Can you tell us a little bit about Last Address and sure. why you made it? Because yeah, I want to go it was, into it was all a, things queer for a second. It was a turning point for me to make this film. I mean, in 2010, I'd been working for about three years to try to get a film funded, which was not getting funded within this independent system. And I was teaching and I, I made a short film um, because I was at telling my students to make short films that were at the top level of what they might be able to do. And I felt like I wanted to do that. I wanted to, to take the resources I had and make something as good as I could. And I, I made a film called Last Address, which is a picture, uh, a series of images of the last residential addresses, the homes, the buildings where a group of New York artists lived uh, when they died of AIDS. So these were a series of exterior shots that um, are both speaking to the past, because there is this absence uh, of the people who live there, and also the present, because the films really bring the city at that moment when I was shooting to life. And um, it was a turning point, partially because I felt like I, I took the reins back in my own hands, and that was partially where I got the, the kind of drive to make keep the lights on. I thought, I'm going to make this film without all those people I've been looking for to give me money and permission from other places. The other thing was getting familiar with this group of artists, people like David Wojnarowicz and, and Jack Smith and um, Jim Lyons, uh, an editor who had actually also been my boyfriend in some years, who, who did a lot of Todd Haynes's films. And, um, you know, so many, many people that we lost um, uh, to, to AIDS and I and I what I what I gained was access to who they were because I started reading about a lot of people and what I remembered was New York in the the 80s when I arrived there when there was a different attitude about what it meant to be an artist and what we had as expectations and we were not trying to be um, it was less assimilationist we were not trying to to become a part of this major economic culture we were still you know, the residuals of, of the punk era. And I, I was really inspired by those people who never thought they'd get really famous or make a ton of money, but made incredibly uh, potent work. And, and it, it changed my life in lots of ways. It turned me around in terms of where I considered myself and positioning myself. Um, and, I, and from that, I really made um, Keep the Lights On. I raised the money to make that film. One of the things that's really, um, when I watch it, um, is the loss that we felt in terms of the great artistry that was lost and, um, and needs to be in many ways replaced and refined and the, 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 the community that was lost as well. And um, to your great credit, um, you are trying to in, in many ways, recultivate that community. Um, and, I, and, and it's one of the reasons why you have become such a, a hero to all of us um, with the Queer Art Mentorship Program that you run out of New York City. And also, I think, I believe it's in uh, L.A., right? So I run one series called Queer Art Film, and, and, and it's been going on for almost five years. And we invite an artist, a queer artist, to, to, to pick a film that they love and share it with an audience. And it's really become a, 
a kind of community organizing event. Um, last night we showed The Queen with Flawless Sabrina, um, which is a documentary from pre-Stonewall about um, drag pageants in New York. And it was a sold out house of, you know, 250 people. And the star of the film was there. And and these, you know, I'm very, this, this is where Love is Strange comes in because I'm, I'm in the middle of my life and I see people passing and I see people not only, you know, the past in terms of AIDS and what we lost there, but my, my parents and their generation. And I'm, I'm really, um, I'm not nostalgic, but I'm, I'm respectful and I'm attentive to this loss. And it's deep to me. And I, and I feel, you know, when I was shooting Love is Strange, I saw a couple um, of men, two men walking through the West Village who were clearly an old gay couple walking through the West Village. And I pulled out my phone and I, and I shot a little video and I sent it to, to John Lithgow and Alfred Molina because I was like, these are, these are our guys. That's Ben and George. There they go. And they're, 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 it's really, it's important to me. I wouldn't just say it's moving or touching. It's important to me. I think it's also because you're in the middle of your life, you're aware that your own life will similarly pass. And I think the film contains a lot of that. I went to Chelsea um, after the screening. I, I, was, I, was, I was starving and uh, I needed to go get my car after your screening and I went uh, to Chelsea and, I, and <laughs> it was this only restaurant that was sort of open and I, I walked in and, and I sat down and there were these two um, men in their I, early, late 60s and they were sitting there in this, in this very crowded mostly male restaurant and one of them turns to the waiter this very hunky waiter and was like um and the waiter brought them um bloodies and he said this has to be a virgin bloody dear god he can't drink anymore and they'd been together you know they'd been yeah. together for 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 30 years you know and yeah. i was i was like that's it right there you know well, well what's interesting is i you know last night i showed the film in um San Francisco and this woman in her 70s came up to me um, and she said that the kid in the film, Joey, played by Charlie Tehan, she said, he's so much like my grandson. And and what was interesting to me is that is that and what you hope for is that people can can find their stories, whatever they might be in a film like this. It's a it, it it's a it. It's a multi-generational family drama. I mean, it's it's my own Magnificent Ambersons in some ways, even though it turns on very small, small things. And I think those are kinds of films which I've always responded to, which are both big and small at the same time. You know, I, I wrote my senior thesis on Jacques Tati, um, his film Playtime, when I was in college. And, and I spent a lot of time watching Jacques Tati movies. And one of the things that I think is so impressive about his work is that you leave the theater looking at the world in a different way. You know, you, you, you notice things when you've seen a Tati movie in terms of sound and image. And, and you know, I, I, someone like Jim Cohen, a uh, totally different filmmaker, but similarly really changes the way I look at things. Scorsese can do that to me when I'm suddenly leaving a movie and everyone seems like they're in a Scorsese movie or an, in an Altman movie. And, and I think uh, that's what you kind of hope for is that, it, that the film is internalized and, and reconfigures how people are going to look at their own lives. I want to say um, I recently read a new screenplay, which 
um, I, I feel like I'm very lucky to be one of the first. And it's really so great and has stayed with me in this very, very deep way. And, and I think maybe because I'm here in Minneapolis in the Midwest, I'm thinking about it and, and the community. And I'm curious, maybe, you know, you can tell us a little bit about where you are with the project. It has a huge amount of heart and intelligence, but it's really the craft that's involved. It's so well constructed and so subtle. Um, I was really thrilled. Well, I mean, the craft is, for me, it's always a... my mind works sort of like a web. To me, it, it all happens in a web in my mind, you know? And, um, and I think that it's a lost art to keep track of things. You know, I recently read that Shirley Jackson uh, walked up a hill and wrote the lottery in an hour and a half um, and put her toddler in a, in a, in a, uh, in a, in a playpen. And I think that um, it, it, I work very, very hard to keep all, a lot of detail in my mind in terms of structure. I, I try to hold these characters in my mind and their actions and their ideas in my mind. Um, so because I feel in some ways I sort of owe it to the piece to hold the emotion of it. You know what I mean? I don't want to I don't want to splay it all out there and say, oh, this this is what happens there. It benefits that you're that we are both writer directors. I think that there's something that is quite different about because you can hold it in your mind because actually the screenplay is just the beginning of a process of of bringing it to life. Yeah, I mean, I I I, I think that it. I I sometimes I can't imagine and um, anyone taking it and and directing it because it it's it's like shorthand. I rely on a lot of feedback. I, I, I love collaboration um, and, and, uh, and I'm just happy for the process. I'm just happy to be writing. I'm just happy when it keep, it's flowing. It's hard material, you know, I don't know that it's ever gonna see, you know, see uh, the, 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 what I, you know, it's ever, it will be realized in the way that it needs to be, but I, I, I hope for the best, you know? And, uh, and thank you for reading it. I appreciate it so very much. And you're currently writing 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. So have you and John Lithgow discussed what he'll wear at the Academy Awards brunch? Uh, um, you know, we just, we just keep plugging along. I mean, I think so much of being a filmmaker is being a hustler. Um, really. <laughs> you're yeah. a pimp. You're the you're the hardest working man in in queer show business. I'm 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 pretty hardworking and I'm and I'm shameless and I'm um, and I'm egotistical and I'm and I'm also I think I have a sense of humor and none of it's that important and all of it's very important and and I and I think those are all kind of things that I've you know I I think you you try to get wisdom about how to like to have a certain balance and and. Uh, uh, but at the same time, you just got to like, nobody, nobody cares if you make your movie or not, to be honest, unless you've made them a hundred million dollars. And then you're part of a system, which of course you were capitalists. We live in a capitalist system. So of course, if you've made a lot of money, there is a pressure to, to do that again. There's a kind of relief when you haven't made a lot of money, because then you can just keep trying new things and seeing, seeing what you have the right to do. You have to raise that money. And that's, that's something that I take very seriously. Um, but there is also a freedom to not being that successful. There's a freedom to also being kind of that old lady. You know what I mean? There is, there is a freedom to that. You know, there's, there's not such a pressure, you know, I mean, I love the idea of just being ridiculous, you know, uh, you know, (laughs) 
I really like the idea of you as an old lady and me as a nice old Jewish man. And we're going to like keep going for a long time to having these conversations. It's kind of a joke, but it's not comical because I think we, we connect to each other partially from those particular pasts. You're a nice Jewish girl. I'm a nice Jewish boy. We're soon going to be nice Jewish elderly. Yeah, you're what Grammy Hall calls a night. You're you're what Grammy Hall calls a uh, a real Jew, Ira. Thank, thank you, Grammy. <laughs> to quote another classic New York film. Yes. Which one? Annie Hall. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let me cut that one out, Nick. You didn't get it. I, that, that's okay. I thought that that was what you called your grandmother. No, uh, you're what Grammy, you're what Grammy Hall calls a real Jew. That's, <laughs> that's what Diane Keaton said. I, I keep that, Nick, because I don't think I need to know every Woody Allen line, even though I'm a nice <laughs> Jew. I, I focused on husbands and wives. That was the period I was interested in. Uh, Are uh, we done? Is that it? Done. I got to go to Den- where am I? Dallas. I go to Dallas. You're going to Dallas. I'm going to Dallas. Are there any old Jews who like movies in Dallas? Wait a minute. I would not be going to any town where they're not old Jews because those are the only people who, as a community, support art house cinema across That's the country. Right. All that they do. I'm always going to a city where right next to the theater is a bagel shop. That's right. That's right. It's so funny. Everybody's asking me about my, my new film, and everybody's like, it's, you know, why would we make this? And I'm like, uh, old Jews. That's yeah. why old Jews. And they're like, they won't watch this. I was like, yeah, they will. Yeah, they will. Yeah, they will. Numbers on yeah, that they will. comedy, Ida. You know. Yeah. A really uh, a, a not the easiest film, which has made four million dollars in the box office in America. So it God. has. Yes. Wow. <laughs> there you go. Ida has made $4 million. Let's, let's, okay. Now you can take this as a pause, but I'm going to go to Box Office Mojo. Okay, it hasn't made $4 million. Ida has made $4 million. I doubt it. Very close. Um, who's going to be quicker? $3,593,867. Dear Lord. There you go. God bless the Jews. <laughs> God bless the Jews. This is Nick Dawson from Talkhouse Film, and you've been listening to Stacey Passam in conversation with Ira Sachs on the Talkhouse Film Podcast. For more filmmakers talking film and TV, visit film.thetalkhouse.com. Subscribe to TalkHouse Film and TalkHouse Music Podcast on iTunes, where you can find all our previous episodes. And while you're there, please rate and review if you can. Until next time, goodbye. What did he say? Talk us what? Podcast? What did he say? What is he talking about? What is he saying? The podcast is hard. You go, Stacey. I'll follow you. Hi, it's Stacey Passon, and you're uh, listening to Iris Sachs and Stacey Passon on the Talk House podcast. Yeah. There you go. <laughs>